support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. It's just a few seconds before 4 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Indigenous rights attorney Sherry Mitchell of the Penobscot Nation has been a regular guest here on WERU. And if you were tuned in this morning at 10, you heard the new Pacifica Network show that she co-hosts called Love and Revolution. Today on Maine Currents, we're bringing you to a talk that Sherry Mitchell gave at the University of Maine last week called Ending Conquest Activism. She was introduced by Professor Mike Howard. I'm very pleased to introduce today our speaker, uh, Sherry Mitchell, who is an Indigenous Rights Attorney and Director of the Land Peace Foundation. She's going to be speaking on the topic of ending conquest activism. So please welcome Sherry Mitchell. My name is Sherry Mitchell. I'm from the Penobscot Nation. My family is Bear Clan from uh, Penobscot Nation and Crow Clan from the Passamaquoddy tribe at Sabayak, and I'm happy to be here with you today. Today I'm going to ask you to go on a journey with me. I'd like to start this journey by telling you a story of our origins and of a worldview that will shape our movement forward. We'll begin that journey right here on the land that we're standing on. <clears throat> you have to excuse me, too. I'm getting over a cold, so my voice is a little bit sketchy. The land beneath this building is a traditional homeland of the Bunawapsqui, or Penobscot people. Uh, for many, the land of their birth is seen as an extension of their bloodline, not just in a metaphorical sense, but through the tangible connections to the flesh, bone, and blood of the ancestors that lived and died there. There was a crow elder named Shis Crow who once said, the soil you see beneath your feet is not ordinary soil. It is the dust of the blood, the flesh, and the bones of our ancestors. The land as it is, is my blood and my dead. The land here holds the dust of the blood, the flesh, and the bones of my ancestors. To honor them, I'd like you to all please stand with me and recognize a moment of silence to acknowledge their presence here. Jubilee One, thank you. Please be seated. <clears throat> the relationships that exist between people and place are often memorialized through defining words that merge into story. As indigenous people, our lives are comprised of these words and the stories that they tell. In order for us to find balance with the world around us, we must recognize that our stories are not the only stories that are being told. Every living thing has its own language and its own story. If we hope to live in a balance, <clears throat> in balance and harmony in this world, we must learn to hear the many stories that are being told around us. Once we do this, our world begins to change. 
our view begins to shift. We begin to see things with a new form of reverence, and we recognize the value that exists in each aspect of creation. When we begin to comprehend the subtle language of creation, we start to see the underlying structure that supports all life on this planet. Our ears become attuned to new frequencies. Then we find that we are able to hear the voices of the trees and understand the buzzing of the bees. And we realize that it is the interwoven substance of these floating rhythms that holds us all in delicate balance with all life. And then perhaps for the first time in our lives, we are able to witness the perfectly orchestrated dance of creation and see the balance that exists within it. We recognize that when the trees breathe in carbon dioxide and release oxygen, our lungs automatically mirror that movement by breathing in the oxygen that is so generously given and releasing carbon dioxide back to the trees. We see our connectivity and interdependence with one another. And we understand that our web of kinship extends far beyond our human family. <clears throat> this worldview is ancient and it is held by peoples from across the globe. It reminds us of our place in creation, keeping us grounded and balanced. It also provides us with the necessary foundation for the work that we do out in the world. As we begin to explore our roles as advocates and activists, we must first examine our view of the world and the nature of our relationship with other human beings and the rest of creation. Over the last few centuries, we have developed a very humanistic view of the world. From this perspective, humans are dominant and the earth is simply a resource available for our exploitation. We have developed countless laws and social contracts that support this position, but these laws and social contracts are based in dominance ideologies that are grossly imbalanced with the rest of creation. All law is based in some form of common agreement, and every agreement contains both rights and responsibilities. When we talk about our rights from an indigenous perspective, we recognize that they are inextricably tied to a corresponding set of responsibilities that requires us to, remain, to maintain a balanced relationship with the rest of creation. This is our natural law that is based on our earliest agreement. It is our original treaty, our agreement with the creator. In our language, the word used for agreement is Lugudwagen. Literally translated, this means entering into kinship with another. It is understood that the forming of an agreement is the forming of a relationship. When we enter into those relationships, we are agreeing to treat the other with the same degree of care and respect that we treat our kin. We know that if we want to claim the rights provided under that agreement, we must honor the responsibilities as well. In our first agreement, we were given the right to inhabit this earth and to live off the sustenance provided by the land. The responsibility that we took on to balance that right was to live in harmony with the natural world and all living beings. For thousands of years, that agreement served us well. But then a new frame of thought entered this land and disrupted the balance of the way of life that we had enjoyed. This new frame of thought included a number of rights and entitlements, but it did not come with a sense of balancing responsibilities towards all life. As a result of this imbalanced view, people have become lost and the unchanging laws of nature have been overshadowed by the constantly shifting laws of man. 
Now this is where our road shifts. I'd like to now walk you through a bit of the history that brought us to our current state of being so that together we can begin to chart a new path forward. This new chapter begins with a set of papal bulls. In 1452, Nicholas V issued a papal bull for the benefit of King's, King Alfonso V of Portugal. That papal bull, titled Dum de Versus, allowed King Alfonso to declare war against all non-Christians throughout the world. Specifically, it directed him to capture, vanquish, and subdue the Saracens, pagans, and other enemies of Christ, to put them into perpetual slavery, and to take all of their possessions and property. Acting on this papal privilege, Alfonso traversed the western coast of Africa, terrorizing and destroying the lives of all those that he encountered. In so doing, Alfonso increased the trafficking of African slaves exponentially as he discovered new lands and claimed them in the name of his God. In 1454, Pope Nicholas sought to expand Alfonso's authority and issue another uh, papal bull <clears throat> titled Romanus Pontifex, which permitted the enslavement and conquest of all lands south of Cape Bojada in Africa. The primary purpose of this papal bull was to forbid other Christian nations from infringing upon Portugal's right of trade and colonization in these regions. Thus, 40 years later, when Columbus erroneously sailed to the Americas, he was operating under a well-established tradition of discovery and conquest. After he discovered the lands in the West, Columbus went back to the Pope, <clears throat> and on May 3rd, 1493, he was issued the Intercetera by Pope Alexander, which granted to Spain the right to conquer the lands which Columbus had already found and any additional lands that he might discover in the future. The Intercetera specifically called for the subjugation of all non-Christian peoples and the confiscation of their lands. In the years following Columbus's journey to the Americas, these grim pillars of conquest, genocide, and slavery became even more widespread. The doctrines of discovery, as they became known, were used by Spain, Portugal, England, France, and Holland all over the globe for the next several centuries. The Christian doctrines of discovery were then carried forward and found their way into American law and policy in the 1800s as a means of justifying the taking of indigenous lands. In 1823, the United States Supreme Court quietly adopted the doctrine of discovery into US law in their decision in Johnson v. McIntosh. The ruling claimed that the federal government had claimed title to all Indian lands that were discovered by the Europeans and the rights that the Indians held to those lands had been diminished by the authority granted to them through the Christian doctrine of discovery. In other words, the rights of the Indian nations were ignored in favor of the authority of the original nation of Christendom that claimed possession of those lands under the papal bulls issued by the Church of Rome. <clears throat> the United States, by viewing itself as a successor in interest, affirmed the archaic practice of issuing conquest rights. Thus, the court affirmed that the United States law was based on a fundamental rule of the Christian law of nations, completely ignoring the foundational law established under the United States Constitution, which demanded a separation of church and state. 
Ironically, in that same year, Madison wrote, it is not the purview of human government. Uh, religion is not the purview of human government. Religion is essentially distinct from civil government and exempt from its cognizance. A connection between the two would be injurious to them both. The impact of that Supreme Court decision has been global in scope. In Gurren versus the Queen, the Supreme Court of Canada affirmed the ruling in Johnson, making it a cornerstone of their Indian law policy. In addition, the High Court of Australia cited Johnson in a remarkable opinion, Mabo versus Queensland. In each of those decisions, the European sovereign was recognized to be the owner of the indigenous lands uh, based on principles of conquest and discovery. Most of us have been brought up to believe that the United States Constitution was, found, was the foundational charter of this country. <clears throat> However, the truth is that this country was founded on archaic laws of conquest. And today, the court still cites the laws of conquest that were outlined by the Catholic Church more than 560 years ago. Perhaps you're wondering what all of this has to do with modern-day uh, activism. Well, it has a lot to do with it. Numerous psychological studies have confirmed that human behavior has long been influenced by religious belief, and that the severity of that influence directly corresponds to the perceived temperament of God. If people believe that their God is vengeful and vindictive, they are more likely to toe the line than if they believe that their God is a loving, forgiving, and benevolent being. If we hope to address the depth of the embedded belief patterns that we are still dealing with today, then the role of religion in forming our modern social structures cannot be overlooked. This understanding is key to the creation of a nonviolent path forward. My friend and colleague, Paul Chappelle, often asks his audiences if they believe that people are naturally violent. He asserts that they are not. He emphasizes this fact by pointing out that the most challenging aspect of war is not arming, housing, feeding, or tending to the troops. The hardest part is keeping the troops from running away when they are faced with an armed enemy. Our natural tendency as human beings toward survival is not to fight, but to flee from danger. The key to getting these soldiers to stay was to convince them that their loved ones and their way of life were in danger and that they had a moral obligation to protect them. One way of doing this was through the use of religious doctrine and obligation. When slavery and genocide first began, those engaged in these practices had to be convinced that the other side was not only a threat to the ones that they loved, but it was their moral obligation to subdue these evil beings on behalf of their seemingly powerless god. The enemy had to be conquered in order in to ensure the safety of the people and to receive the favor of God. The irony of assuming that conquest is a legitimate means to achieve safety or peace is that one cannot deny the right of the conqueror unless they're able and willing to use military force to do so. Conquest has been widely accepted because the conquering force was by definition stronger than the lawful government that it replaced and was therefore viewed as being more capable of securing peace and stability for the people through the ongoing use of that force. Thus, conquest in and of itself legitimized the conqueror toward that end. Clearly, 
we can all attest to this, history has proven that conquest can only ever provide a limited fleeting form of safety. You can only be safe until the next conqueror comes along. Yet these principles of conquest have been accepted and deeply embedded into the public psyche for thousands of years. They have been supported by a common social agreement upheld by both religious and legal doctrine. So let's take a look at some of the earliest examples of how the laws of conquest were supported through religious doctrine, which was also the ruling law of the land at the time. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Ephesians 6, 5 from the Bible. Not only was religion used as a tool to convince the slave masters that they were obligated to act, but it was also used to make the slaves obedient to their masters. So what happens when you don't obey? If you're like me and you were a very curious child, you wanted to know the answer to that question. All existing creatures that had lived on the surface of the ground were annihilated. From humans to livestock, from crawling creatures to birds of the sky, they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah, who, as we all know, was obedient, remained along with those who were with him in the ark. Another passage. So David did as God commanded him, and they struck down the Philistine army all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. So David's fame spread throughout every land, and the Lord made all the nations fear him. So when Pope Nicholas issued his papal bull in 1452, these ideas were not new. They were already deeply ingrained into the social fabric. Human beings must obey the written law. They must obey the written letter of religious law if they hope to find favor with God. And if favor isn't persuasive enough, then perhaps they will obey if they realize that God smites those who disobey. Today, not much has changed. Though the form differs, the practices of genocide and slavery have remained fundamental aspects of our social contract. I'm gonna show you a series of posters that are somewhat historic at this point in time. A slavery poster claiming that the Negro is not a human being. Kill the Indian, save the man. Destroy this mad brute, enlist. Supporting the enemy as the mad brute. This slide from Rwanda. The Tutsi is the race of God. Which weapons are we going to use to beat the cockroaches for good? It's a translation of what it says here in these. When we look at these historic images, it's pretty easy for us to see the trappings of conquest that are being portrayed. But can we recognize those same trappings of conquest that exist today? Because there are many modern examples of these same types of behaviors that have morphed 
with our evolving social contract. So this is fairly recent. Congress raids ancestral Native American lands with a defense bill. So the Apache land grab at Oak Flat um, in the 2015 National Defense Authorization Act gave 2,400 acres of the Tonto National Forest known as Oak Flat in Arizona to a subsidiary of an Australian mining company, Rio Tinto. This land is the ancestral home of the, the San Carlos Apache, and it is a sacred site. Some of their greatest heroes and um, most honored um, historical figures are buried there. Uh, South Dakota, this is an ongoing issue. In a two-year period, uh, 2010 to 2012, this case is actually still being argued. It's uh, now an appeal. The state of South Dakota illegally removed more than 800 children from their homes and placed them in foster care with absolutely no due process. The parents never got a hearing. They never got to present evidence on how or why or whether they were unfit. The children were just taken, and sometimes it was six to nine months before they were ever given a hearing. Indigenous women are 10 times more likely to be murdered than any other racial group on the planet. This is corresponding to a series of laws that uh, created loopholes for those committing crimes against uh, women and children to find a safe haven in indigenous communities because the law prevented indigenous peoples from prosecuting those who committed crimes on their lands. And more than 75% of those crimes went unprosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office. So when you have those kinds of statistics, then you're likely to target the population where you think that you have the greatest chance of success in avoiding any type of prosecution for your crime. Ecological genocide. This is um, an area in Alberta where they're um, doing tar sands extraction. And uh, this little tiny black dot, these little tiny black dots are humongous trucks, like humongous trucks. Um, and so this whole area is part of the Boreal National Forest, and it's been completely destroyed by these activities. There are 45 tribes in that part of Alberta, and some of those tribes are flying communities, so they don't have access to um, any of the mainland, mainland resources, and uh, they've essentially been starved out. They can't use their water. They get sores on their skin. They have... Uh, really aggressive rare forms of cancer that are cropping up. They can no longer eat any of their sustenance or subsistence foods. This is genocide. This is ecological genocide. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. And the speaker is Sherry Mitchell, Indigenous rights attorney, a member of the Penobscot Nation, speaking at the University of Maine last week on Thursday, February 18th. And we're going to get right back to that. I just want to take a quick break here, let you know what you're listening to, and also invite you to go to the phone and make a pledge, show your support for independent local, national, and international news programming here on WERU. The number is 1-800-643-6273. Again, 1-800-643-6273. We know our listeners really value a commercial-free and uh, not influenced by corporations kind of media and the way that's possible is with your support. 1-800-643-6273. We have about 
$6,100 left to go during this pledge drive to meet our goals. So you can make a little dent on that or you can make a big dent in that. Whatever works for you, any amount that you can contribute is helpful to us. We have no minimum. So 1-800-643-6273. And we're going to go ahead and go back to the rest of the hour here on Maine Currents. Again, we're listening to Sherry Mitchell giving a talk at the University of Maine last week. I'm going to go ahead and return to that in just a moment. 1-800-643-6273 is the number to call in and make a pledge and support your community radio station, WERU. Private prison corporations are the modern-day slave traders. There are more black men in the prison system today than there ever were under slavery. There is a pipeline from uh, the poorest communities into the prison system. There have been some judges that have been convicted of um, actually taking money to funnel young black men into the prison system, Um, but the problem is huge and it's not going away anytime soon. Poverty. There are two ways to conquer and enslave a country. One is by the sword, the other is by debt. So the key to changing this dynamic is to rehumanize ourselves to the rest of the world and to rehumanize the rest of the world in our own eyes. It's easy to create policies and to engage in practices that diminish the humanity of others if we don't see them as being human beings. I think that every single one of us in this room has the ability to identify these and many more examples of conquest ideology that are represented in our world today. For many, including myself, addressing these issues has become the work of our lives. Yet if we truly want to create change and stop the cycles of endless conquest that we're living under, we must be willing to not only look at how the underpinnings of conquest frame our society, but how that ideology influences our activism. All across the globe, people are rising up in opposition to failed systems that are robbing us of our freedom, dignity, health, and chances for survival on this planet. There is a global movement afoot. People from all walks of life and from all corners of the world are waking up to the reality of our current state of being. So now that this uprising has occurred and the movement has begun, the question is what do we do with it? How do we harness and direct the massive amount of energy that is being created? As these movements continue to grow across the planet, we need to think about how we utilize their momentum to shift our trajectory toward survival, toward a new way of living that is in alignment with a balanced, humane, and equitable way of life. So let's take a few minutes to think about the movements of the past. How do we build movements that are designed to meet these goals? When we think about successful movements of the past, most of us think about people like Gandhi and the Satyagraha, Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, Frederick Douglass and the Abolitionists, Lucy Stone and Suffragists. These were all successful movements and they were all based on nonviolence. There are two key moments that rose up out of those remarkable histories that I'd like for us to focus on for a few minutes. This is Gandhi, as many of you know, this famous picture of Gandhi picking up salt at the end of the salt march. 
there are a few things that we're going to focus on in these two scenarios. In both of these scenarios, this one and the lunch counter sit-ins with Martin Luther King, very famous pinnacle moments that shifted the trajectory of those movements. In both of these scenarios, there were things that were being claimed or reclaimed. In this image here of Gandhi and Satyagraha, Gandhi is reclaiming something essential to the lives of the Indian people, the salt, which was key to their physical survival in a very uh, arid part of the country, as much as it was part of their cultural and economic reality. In this picture here, Dr. King and the lunch counter activists, they were claiming something that they had been denied, which was an equal place within the society, a place at the table. Both of these photos have inspired generations of activists, but they don't tell the whole story. Following both of these pinnacle moments, there were agreements that were reached with the other side. In these agreements, concessions were made. This left many within these individual movements dissatisfied. They felt as though the leadership had failed them by caving into the demands of the other side. However, the leadership recognized two very important things. They recognized that these moments were largely symbolic and that their symbolic import far outweighed the momentary impact that they had. For instance, in the lunch counter um, sit-ins, the agreement that was made was that they would quietly desegregate the downtown. They wouldn't announce it, they wouldn't make a big deal about it, they wouldn't have anything in the media. Those who had been part of the movement wanted everybody to know about their success. They wanted to publicize it. And when the leadership said, no, we're gonna do this, we're gonna quietly desegregate this area, many people became really angry. So the symbolism of that moment was recognized by the leaders. <clears throat> These snapshot moments captured the essence of peaceful resistance against a seemingly insurmountable force, and they inspired the people to believe that nonviolent action could succeed. The leaders recognized that both sides had a stake in the outcome, which is also very important. It allowed for the creation of movement from both sides. This is very important. It's a very important aspect of the work that we do. Oftentimes we forget something fundamental in our movements towards peace, and that is that we must make peace with our perceived enemies. It is not simply about aligning with our friends. This is the great challenge in our work, to remember that peace is achieved by bringing together different groups that are opposed to one another under some form of common dream or goal. Admittedly, it isn't easy, but I guess if it were easy, then everybody would be doing it. In order for us to reach a peaceful outcome, we have to be wise enough to know when and where to make concessions, when and where we can allow movement. Recognizing that we all have a stake in the outcome causes us to re-examine how we engage the process of change. This brings us to another essential element of building an effective movement. As we build our movements, we have to become mindful of what Derek Bell called the interest convergence dilemma. Bell stated that minority rights are only recognized by the dominant society when that society believes that it is in their best interest to recognize those rights. So we think about some of the things that have happened historically and some of the shifts that have occurred. 
those things didn't happen because the politicians on the other end said, you know, by golly, my heart and mind has changed and this is the right thing to do. Those changes occurred as a result of a changing social ideology, as a result of political pressure, as a result of using a little bit of force. We have this word in our language called samognus, and it means using enough force. It's a word for one, uh, one of our words for warrior, one who uses enough force to keep the other from harming them, but does not cause them any harm. And that's what's being applied when we talk about these types of things. So with this idea in mind of interest convergence, we have to search for common points of interest that we can build on. This cannot be done when we have clearly delineated lines of opposition. For instance, the need on the other side of the climate movement is almost always about supply in the economy. We cannot address life-threatening environmental issues that are brought forward by the extractive industry if we're unwilling to look honestly at our role in creating supply for those products and at the basic need of the workers who are trying to support their families economically. Some of the work that I do through the Land Peace Foundation is we work with people who are on the front line who are facing um, some real major struggles. One of the groups that we worked with was a group of individuals in a place called Elsiebukduk, um, which is up near Rexton, New Brunswick. We went up there and trained groups of people um, twice a couple of winters ago because they were standing using, applying this principle of samognus against uh, a fracking, hydro fracking company that wanted to come in that had already polluted water sources for other areas and they didn't want that to come into their community and to pollute their waters. One community um, was facing pollution so severe that 10% of their population was dying a year from rare forms of cancer. So there was a driver for this um, company who came in every day, was facing these protesters. It started to get really violent. They actually had um, hired militia on the ground there. There were snipers in the trees wearing US Special Forces hats, um, retired military who had hired out as private militia. Most of these corporations have their own private militia. And so it was really tense. The situation was really tense. There was a lot of fear that somebody was going to get hurt. And so we went in and we worked with these people. And one of the things that we taught them to do was to connect to the heart of those on the other side. How do you connect to the heart of those on the other side? How do you look at them as a human being with the same needs, wants, and desires that you have? So instead of having the radical, angry young people at the front line, we moved the grandmothers to the front line. And we had the grandmothers looking in the eye of the RCMP and that private militia and saying, we're here because we love your children too. We don't want your children to be poisoned any more than we want our children to be poisoned. And they started this quiet dialogue with them. And one day we got a story, a report back that they had set up uh, an area where they had a fire, the ceremonial fire, sacred fire that was going 24-7 uh, for the entire time of the standoff. 
and it was always occupied by somebody who was tending the fire and available for people that wanted to come and to offer prayers there or to get warm or whatever it was that they needed. One day, one of the thumping trucks stopped outside of the area where the sacred fire was. A gentleman walked over to the fire and dropped down on his knees before the fire and started sobbing. And he said, I don't want to hurt you people. I don't want to hurt your children any more than I want somebody to hurt my children. But I don't know any other way to make a living. This is all I know. If you show me something else that I can do to support my family, I'll do it. We need to create space for movement, for people to be able to move. When you back anyone, whether it's a wild animal or a human being, into a corner, they are going to fight you more powerfully than at any other time. That's where this whole notion of a berserker rage comes from. It's when you're backed into a corner and there's no other way out, the only way out for you to fight, you're going to fight with everything you have. We want to create space for movement on both sides. So we need to think about these things. This is not, uh, you know, just a feel-good discussion. We're not here to just pat ourselves on the back. When we engage in this work, we're not looking to enter a social club or a new dating scene. Most of the people that engage in social activism type work are there because they genuinely care about the issues that are being addressed. They are genuinely concerned about our future survival on this planet. They are genuinely concerned about the suffering of others and they want to be able to create change. So we have to think about this and we have to think about how do we contribute to providing something new, something that those wishing to move can move into. We have to focus our attention on what we want rather than on what we don't want. Yet when we look at most of our modern day movements, we're completely bombarded with an ongoing perpetual theme um, with clear images of their oppositional nature. We're united against war. We're not united for peace, we're united against war. I use this picture and I secretly am in love with it because these are all Nobel laureates. And they came together and they're standing in front of the White House, but still the message is no, no, this is not what we want. We're putting all of our energy and all of our um, our voice into declaring what we don't want. We're energizing it and we're feeding it. So we're able to say no easily. It's easy to say no to what we don't want. It's easy for us to stand up. It's easy for us to fight against what we don't want. It's easy for us to define the water that we're drowning in in excruciating detail. We can all do that. In order to create the paradigm shift that's needed to make lasting change, we have to be willing to find a point of interest convergence so that we can begin working together to build new systems that honor all life. We have to provide people with the means to make a living in a way that does not desecrate the earth, violate human rights, or create more violence. And we have to be willing to step out front and demonstrate to the general population that the transition to these new methods is not only achievable, but beneficial. 
And what this means is that we must not only speak for, but actively invest in the world that we wish to create. This may require us to reconsider the amount of energy that we put into each piece of our work. Last year, um, some of you, a couple of you in here that know me, um, know that I became very, very sick. And um, I had to take some time off from work and my energy level was really, really low. But there were still things that I was very impassioned about that I wanted to continue to lend my voice to, that I wanted to support in a number of different ways. And so I started choosing selectively what I could be a part of. And what I noticed was that when I went to any type of protest um, activity, my energy was completely drained by the time I got home and it would take me two days to recover my energy. When I went to any event that was about creating something new, I was energized. I felt better. My energy levels were higher than when I had left the house. So there's a story that I want to tell you all. Maybe some of you have heard it because it's become kind of cliche. Um, it's a story about two wolves. It's a native parable that you, know, you can find all over the internet now and everybody claims that they're the ones who originated the story. But this is how the story goes. A group of children had gathered around their grandfather. They were filled with excitement and curiosity over what he might say. That day had been quite a tumultuous day in the community. There had been a significant conflict that unfolded between two adults and the grandfather had been called in to mediate. The children, being curious in nature, were eager to hear what the grandfather had to say about what had happened. One of the children asked him, Grandfather, why do people fight? The grandfather said, We all have two wolves inside of us, and these wolves are constantly fighting each other. The children became very concerned and asked, Are these wolves inside of us too? Yes, he told them in you, in me, in all of us. There is one that is filled with fear, anger, envy, jealousy, greed, and arrogance. The other is filled with peace, love, hope, courage, humility, and compassion, and faith. They battle constantly. One of the children, greatly concerned by what he was hearing, jumped up and asked the grandfather with a sense of urgency, but grandfather, which wolf wins? And the grandfather told him, the one that we feed. One of the greatest benefits to our work is an understanding of the fact that what we feed will grow. And we're seeing this now in the world. We're seeing evidence of our anger and our hostility mounting and growing day by day. The more anger we throw at a problem, the bigger the problem becomes. We see the evidence of that in front of our faces every single day. So how we invest our energy becomes very important. If we invest all of our energy opposing what we don't want, we feed opposition and we grow the very thing that we're trying to overcome. If we truly want to create the change that we would like to see, we need to be investing the majority of our energy into building the world that we want to inhabit. That doesn't mean that we completely stop opposing practices that are harmful. I talked earlier about the word smogness. 
it's really important for us to engage that practice. We have to stop the flow of harm that's coming. We have to have frontline workers who are out there who are stopping the flow of harm. But we need to have the bulk of the people behind them busily creating something new. Again, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Maine Currents on WERU, and this is Sherry Mitchell, Indigenous rights attorney and member of the Penobscot Nation. She was speaking at the University of Maine last week on the topic of ending conquest activism. We now return for the last part of her speech. So this practice of Samognus is essential to protect Mother Earth and all life right now. It's essential. But we must be very conscious of the overall equation that we operate within and to be sure that we're investing the majority of our energy in building the type of world that we want to live in. We must learn these basic energetic principles that we operate under and use those principles to our advantage. It used to be that this type of stuff was considered to be kind of woo-woo, you know, which I'm not opposed to. I, I enjoy woo-woo every once in a while. Um, but now science is starting to catch up to indigenous knowledge. It's starting to catch up to this um, shamanic principles that have been out there and being promoted in the world. In his book, Power Versus Force, David Hawkins informs us that there are invisible energy fields that correlate with people's vibratory energy that are the primary determinants of human behavior. Drawing from chaos theory and quantum physics, plus his own kinesiological findings, Hawkins developed a logarithm to measure the magnitude of people's invisible energy fields. According to Hawkins, individuals at the high end of the scale, for instance, people like Buddha, Jesus, Amma, or Mother Teresa, help balance out the energies of individuals at the lower end of the scale. So at the higher end of the scale, we have things like love and peace and harmony. At the lower end of the scale, we have things like fear and anger. Hawkins claims that one individual at a level 300 counterbalances the energies of 90,000 individuals operating below 200. So if you have individuals that are operating at this low level energy and you have somebody that's really positive, that has a higher vibrational frequency, they actually will elevate the vibrational frequencies of others that they encounter. And so have you ever noticed somebody that walks into a room, lights it up, and everybody just suddenly starts feeling happy because they're there? That's what's going on invisibly in the room, is that that person's elevated vibrational frequency is actually elevating the vibration of all of the people in the room with them. I mean, it's just a basic energetic principle. <clears throat> Hawkins says that one individual at 400 counterbalances 400,000 individuals below 200. One individual at 500, which is supposed to be the, the level of love, 500 or higher, counterbalances 750,000 individuals who are vibrating below 200. One individual at 600, the level associated with peace, has the ability to counterbalance 10 million individuals below 200. If we understand these energetic principles and recognize our connectivity to one another, 
we realize that we have the potential to dramatically shift the trajectory that we are on simply by shifting the energetic imprint that we are casting by shifting the focus of our attention. If we hope to successfully shift away from the dominant energies of conquest, which are fear and anger, then we must be willing to operate from a higher vibrational frequency and orient the work that we do toward a vibration of love, peace, and creation. We must use this love uh, vibration to create the type of world that we truly wish to inhabit. If we fail to do so, when all of this is said and done, all that will be, all that will exist is the broken pieces of the system that we're currently inhabiting, the system that is currently crumbling down around us, making way for another dominant force to come in and to take over. Creating a new worldview involves the process of creation. What we've had in the past has not served us. The system that we've been operating under for more than 2,000 years has failed us. We have to be willing to create something new. We have to build new systems that are aligned with a new way of being in the world, which requires us to be critical, creative thinkers. If those systems are going to be built, guess what? Someone's going to have to build them. Someone has to step out front, take responsibility for building these systems. There are people that are doing that all over the world. They are right now engaged in this huge, challenging struggle in Boulder with a huge coal company that's dumping millions of dollars into the area and a grassroots group of people who are trying to divest the entire basin area from coal and convert it all to renewables uh, under a co-op system. Black Mesa Water. They're doing the same thing out there. They're trying to shift their energy production from coal to water. Food sovereignty, people taking action, taking responsibility for growing their own food, from living sustainably upon what they can produce within their own regions. Educational sovereignty, people taking charge of the education of our children, getting them out of this mainline system and bringing them into a system that actually creates critical creative thinkers rather than those who are only taught to think in alignment with the current paradigm. These are the types of things that we can be doing and these are the types of things that people are doing. Um, and we can't afford to wait for somebody else to come along and do it. I love this quote. The greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. Angels, aliens, you know, whatever it is that you're waiting for. Um, if you're waiting for uh, leadership to suddenly change their mind and to start operating under a new system, you're going to be waiting until you're dust. But this is the truth of the matter. We are the ones that we've been waiting for. And so if we want to be able to shift the way that we're moving, if we want to be able to change the trajectory that we're currently on, we have to be willing to let go of this domination matrix that we're all operating under. A lot of the activism that's being engaged in the world is about overthrowing and crumbling current systems. It's not about building something new. That exists, but it's not the majority of the work that's being done. 
if we hope to be able to create a new paradigm to step into, then we have to be responsible for building that paradigm. We have to be willing to move out of these conquest ideologies and to shape something new moving forward that's based on principles of love, harmony, respect, and balanced living with the rest of creation. And I know that this is a very difficult thing for some people to face who have engaged their whole lives in these forms of protest, um, you know, deconstructionist forms of activism because there was a point in time when, you know, maybe that was a little bit effective. But it hasn't been effective in the long term. It hasn't been effective on the broader scale. The only way that we're actually going to change it is to literally change it. And we're the ones that are responsible for doing that. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to answer uh, any questions that you might have. Yeah. I noticed that uh, you gave several examples of things that are happening in right. the West of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you have any examples of things right here in our, our area here. There are actually a lot of things that are being done in this area, and a lot of them are around food sovereignty. Um, there are there's huge food sovereignty movements that are taking place right now. And really, um, food sovereignty is at the heart of the revolution. Um, what, if you think, what exactly do you mean by that? Sovereignty? Well, disengaging from these large industrialized food production systems, uh, localizing your efforts, localizing your food sources, uh, working only with your local farmers and growers, and um, not investing, because that's what we're doing, is we're investing in a system that is actually destroying our planet. Large-scale agro-business is responsible for the greatest destruction of our planet. A lot of people think that it's the extraction industry, which is neck and neck with it. It's a close second, and the destruction um, that it does is so huge that you know it rivals um, the system, but agro-business is actually responsible for the destruction of our water on a global scale. It also destroys the soil. Uh, when the soil is loaded with all of these chemicals, it doesn't naturally um, produce the minerals and the nutrients that we need to be able to grow food. So what happens when you have these big monocrop agro-businesses that come in and all they grow is soybeans or all they grow is GMO corn? Um, or sugar beets or whatever it is that they're growing, it actually destroys, after a number of years, the soil base so that nothing will grow there. It's like a desert. And so if we divest from that system and go back to small-scale um, farming, to growing the majority of our own food or purchasing the majority of our own food from small-time local growers, we actually dissolve that system slowly over time, you know. And so one of the things that is happening is that there's pushback from industry. Um, how many of you know what the TPP is? Okay. Um, there's three things, the TPP, the TTIP, and TISA. And these are huge trade agreements. And what they do is they take control over regulation in local areas and they move that regulation into the hands of a tribunal of corporations. And so these corporate entities 
have control essentially over everything that goes on in uh, your local community, in your nation. There are right now 13 signatory countries um, to the TBP, and um, some of those countries are the countries where the most horrific human rights violations um, have been occurring. And so, for instance, one of the things that they're trying to do in anticipation of the TPP rolling out, because if you pass a law in Orono, Maine, that says uh, you can't use Roundup on your crops, no crops that contain Roundup are allowed to be sold in this local community. These big corporations can actually sue Orono for impeding their profitability. And this is a treaty, right, that your government is trying to push through right now. And so you have no ability to do anything about it because there's no domestic recourse for violations of these trade agreements. Everything under the trade agreement goes to this corporate tribunal who will decide um, what the outcome is. And what do you think these big corporations are going to decide? Do you think they're going to decide in favor of you having a garden in your backyard? Because your garden in your backyard impedes the profitability of these big agro-businesses? No. And so you've seen this sweep across the country of different municipalities trying to outlaw or to regulate and control backyard gardens. And so when I say that food is at the heart of the revolution, that's what I mean, is that, um, you know, growing your own food is a revolutionary act in the face of these mounting pressures that exist. Um, if the TPP uh, actually goes through Congress, you might as well just have a big party and celebrate the triumphant return of feudalism because that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's these big oligarchs who are going to be able to determine everything that you do with your life, from food production to access to water, internet access. If you're found to be misusing your internet, then they can limit your accessibility to the internet. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's sweeping. 40% of our lives, over 40% of our lives will be impacted by the passage of this trade agreement. And everybody needs to know what it is. If you don't know what it is, educate yourself. Google TPP, TTIP, and TISA. Um, it's just one of the most horrific things that has come along in a long, long time. It's really a corporate takeover. And that was Sherry Mitchell again speaking at the University of Maine on Thursday last week. She's an Indigenous rights attorney and member of the Penobscot Nation. She's also the host of a new radio show on the Pacifica Network called Love and Revolution, which you'll be hearing here on WERU in the future. And you may have caught it at 10 o'clock this morning as we had it as a substitute program for a cancellation we have due to the storm. This program that you've been listening to is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. We're on every Wednesday afternoon at 4 o'clock. If you have story ideas or suggestions, please send those to us at news at weru.org. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Please call, make a pledge. We're going to hear some messages, and then Joel Mann and I will be back to tell you why. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported, nonprofit organization focused on reviving 